Well, it's great to be a part of this series of cliches because I know I've been guilty of using them myself. As a pastor, sometimes you just, you, you got these pastorisms that just come out of you and you just say them without even really thinking about the fact that, wow, I just kind of glossed over a really big conversation by just saying something cliche. And we do that because sometimes we don't know what to say when somebody talks about what's going on in their life. Other times we do it because we just don't want to go into the weeds. We just don't feel comfortable stepping into a deeper conversation because we can't bear that person's burden with them, and it's too overwhelming for us. And so we come up with these little bumper sticker statements, and we're quick to slap these, these bumper sticker cliches onto our life. But what happens when your circumstances in life rear in the bumper of your life and faith and crunches those little bumper stickers you've been holding on to? Now, be honest, how many of you have seen some pretty wacky Christian bumper stickers on somebody's car? Yeah. Uh, how many of you have laughed as you drove by a church that had some kind of little cliche written out on their church sign and thought, oh, wow, that's how you want to try to engage people in our community with that? Yeah, that's why I never allowed a church sign. I know there was somebody who really felt we needed to have one, that we could put those cute little sayings out on the, this was when we were on Columbus, and I said, no, thank you. The real message has to come with living life together and coming inside the walls of the church and discovering hope and then taking that message out, not on a sign. Well, today we're going to look at another cliche. Before we do that, I'm going to just take a quick survey. How many of you, when you were going through something difficult and some kind and caring Christian said some kind of cliche that you just felt like punching them square in the nose? Just be honest. Yeah, there's... Just proof that sometimes the right thing said at the wrong time is not necessarily helpful. In fact, we at times want to help somebody with these statements, and we might actually end up hurting them or confusing them. And today's cliche is probably the most guilty for doing this. Today we're going to tackle the cliche that God will not give you more than you can handle. God will not give you more than you can handle. Now, how many of you have found yourself saying that to yourself or saying that to somebody else? God will not give you more than you can handle. Well, the fact is you're not going to find that in the Bible. That's not a quote from the Bible. You're not going to find God shall not giveth thee more than thou canst handle in the King James Version. So where does it come from? If Christians are using this, what is the basis for this cliche? I believe that it probably got pulled from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. So if you have your Bibles today or you have your Bible app, you can swipe to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Uh, the Bible app is a great way to engage the Word. Just open your app, go to more, go to events. You'll find Neighborhood Church there using the top of your list. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and, and maybe some of you have heard this before. I'm going to read it for you. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. 
So you can kind of see where God will not give you more than you can handle. Seems like maybe this is the passage that it's come from, where it talks about, you know, God's not going to give you more than you can bear. You're not going to be tempted beyond your ability to endure. So it seems like this might be the origin. But what I want to look at is the word tempted that's used in this passage. It has a very specific Greek word that's used 21 times in the New Testament. The word temptation can mean tempted to sin. That's about 10 of the uses in the the New Testament. It also can mean a testing. A testing, like sometimes it's a testing of your faith or going through a test in life, and that's about five times. And then about six times it's used to talk about trials. Paul uses those to talk about the trials he has gone through, the, the experiences, the hardships he's gone through. So the challenge becomes, well, which one does it mean in this passage? Which version of temptation is the Greek word trying to use? And a word, by the way, for this, I'm not going to take a lot of time in grammar here, but basically a word can only mean one thing at one time. And the word is defined, or you know how it's defined, by the context in which the word is sitting. Let me give you an example. In the English language, we have lots of words that sound the same and look the same, and it is the same word, but has different meanings. For example, the word fall. When I say fall, you're probably all thinking about autumn because of those great jokes that that Pastor Dan just shared with us. I I wrote those down. I'm going to use them as dad jokes. So we think about it's fall. We love the cool, crisp air of fall. We love football in fall. We love fall. But we also know that that word in a different sentence can mean something else. For example, I never want to fall on my way to the platform. That gives that word now a different definition, right? Or we can take the word date. When I say the word date, different things are coming to your mind right now. Because the word itself does not have a context yet. But now let's take that word and put it into a context. Let's say it this way. Joe took Alexandria out on a date. All of a sudden, we all know what that word means because of the context. But if I take that same word, date, same four letters, and I say that her favorite fruit to eat is a date. Now, either she is a cannibal eating her date or she loves the fruit, date. In that regard, that word cannot mean more than one thing, or it makes that a very interesting statement. It has one meaning. Or not to date myself, but I remember listening to radio shows as a kid. Now, that's not true for me. I'm not that old, all right? But not to date myself all of a sudden now has a definition of what we mean. Or what is your date of birth? Now we know what you're asking for. And so given the context, we know what the word means. So even when I say a confusing sounding statement like this, you still know what it means in the context. Listen to, what I'm, listen to the statement. What date was your date eating a date? Now you would know in each of those words what I'm saying. What date was your date eating a date? Because that really dated your date. All of a sudden, now, you you can tell just by how it's being set in the phrase. So when we come back to the word temptation, that can mean temptation to sin, it can mean trials, it can mean troubles. You know, how do we know in this passage what it means? You have to go to the context of this passage. 
Let's rewind a little bit in 1 Corinthians 10 and go to verse 6 to set this verse 13 in its context. In verse 6, Paul writes, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things. Let's listen to what he talks about now, as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, and as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Okay, so that's the background leading us up to this verse. Now let's put our verse 13 in its context. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can endure it. And now let's go to the final verse in this context, verse 14. Therefore, so this is a summary of everything said, including verse 13. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from, what's the word? Idolatry. It's not flee from your troubles. It's not flee from your hardship. Idolatry. So when we look at this verse now in its context, we can come to understand that the word temptation had a very specific definition in that Greek word for Paul. And it was the temptation to sin. But when we take a verse like 1 Corinthians 10, 13 and just rip it off the pages of the Bible and slap it on a bumper sticker and make it mean something it wasn't intended to mean, like God won't give you more than you can handle, and here's a verse to back it up, we're misusing and misinterpreting that verse. So we get the, the actual intention of that passage by looking at the context. So this has been always my big beef. I have found Christians pull a verse, put it up on social media, and try to pitch something that it's never intended to pitch. You have to look at the verse in its complete background. That's the case with this one. And so we came up with a cliche based on a scripture that doesn't really back up the cliche. And when we take scripture to mean something it's not intended to mean, people get confused. And chances are people might get even hurt by it. Now, when we put this in its right context, this is actually what 1 Corinthians 10, 13 sounds like. No temptation to sin has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted to sin beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted to sin, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Now, besides the topic we have for today, this is actually a great truth and a great passage. It doesn't have anything to do with the cliche we're talking about, but it is a very important passage but it doesn't apply to our difficulties and hardships that come our way. How many know that most hardships and trials don't usually have a way out or a way of escape? We wish they did. We look for them. But sometimes the only way out is through them, right? And you can't flee from your trials. Lord knows we want to run away, but how many know your trouble just kind of 
follows you wherever you run to. But however, temptation to sin does have a way out. The temptation to sin is something that we should flee. And so so Christ gives us victory over the power of sin, and sin doesn't have to have mastery over us, and we can say no. That's a great truth. But this verse promises God will help us when we're tempted to sin. It does not promise that God will never give you more than you can handle. With temptation, guess what? You have a choice. But with suffering... With difficulties, you often don't have a choice, do you? Did you choose cancer? Did you choose abuse? Those weren't choices that you could actually make. Sometimes life just happened. And so when we take this text and we slap that bumper sticker on somebody's situation, it can mislead them and confuse them. It can cause them to question God's word and his integrity because what happens when you do experience more than you can endure. And many of us have. And we feel like we're failures. What happens when life brings us those things? We think either God's a liar, or he doesn't care, or he doesn't keep his promises. He's not trustworthy. And I firmly believe, like I said before, many people have given up on their faith in God and walked away because of a misapplied or misappropriated scripture or a cleverly crafted but mostly false Christian cliche like this one. When people take those words about temptation to sin and apply it to trials and suffering, it's not true. In fact, the opposite is often true, that God will give you or allow more than you can handle. In fact, consider what Paul has to say about that a little bit further. In 2 Corinthians, the next letter he writes to the church at Corinth, He writes these words, kind of capturing what happened in his life. We do not want you to be uninformed. This is 1 Corinthians 1, verse 8. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. Well, that's an encouraging verse. You know, you're not going to find that on a bumper sticker. You're not going to find somebody, you know, doing some kind of a cutesy social media meme with that verse. But imagine if, if 1 Corinthians 10.13, which Paul wrote, and Paul wrote this verse as well, imagine if 1 Corinthians 10.13 was about trials and troubles. How could Paul in that passage say, and God is faithful, he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he'll also provide a way out so you can endure it. How could he say that and then write 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, which is actually about troubles and trials that he's going through, and he says, we are, we're under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired of life itself. In other words, death looked like a better option than what we were going through. So either Paul is emotionally unstable to say that and then this, or he's guilty of saying and preaching something that he doesn't actually privately believe. So which is it? Well, the answer is, Paul is certainly testifying to the fact that God does allow and at times even give us more than we can handle. 
But let me bring some clarity on God's role in our troubles, our trials, our suffering. And the first one is this. God is not the source of all of our trials and troubles. Let me say that again. God is not the source of all of our trials and troubles. There are times that God allows us to face trials, but he isn't the one who always gives or causes them to happen. For example, some troubles and suffering come as a result of the wickedness or the sinfulness of humankind. Yesterday was the 20th anniversary of the event that all of us remember if we were alive on 9-11-2001. And there were people at, I remember hearing well-intended preachers preach that God brought this to America to teach them something. Here's what I think. The wickedness of man was carried out because wickedness and evil is real. So we see that, the wickedness. How about crimes? It's because of wickedness, crimes against you or abuse, relational strife. What's at work there? It's the wickedness and the sinfulness of man. It's not coming from God. Certainly it's allowed within our free will that God gave us, but it doesn't come directly from the hand of God. And friends, to be honest, we also have the uncanny ability to bring trouble upon ourselves, don't we? By our own choices and our own actions. Like I can think of Israel, this nation that was called by God and and blessed to be his chosen people and, and given the law to help guide their life, and they totally messed it all up by their choices and lost their promised land and were exiled away from their land of promise and and disciplined by the hardships they went through because of their choices. King David, one evening he was out on the balcony and he sees Bathsheba taking a bath and he lusts after her and commits adultery. He made a decision that brought suffering upon him and Bathsheba by his own choice. Would you say that was what God brought David? No, again, his own decisions do that. So God is not the source of all of our troubles and our trials. Sometimes we're pretty good at bringing those upon ourselves, or the wickedness in which we live in our world. But also understand that God will allow and at times give you more than you can handle. In his wisdom, in his sovereignty, God will put you in situations that will overwhelm you. I think of Moses in the Old Testament. He faced something completely overwhelming for a man like him to face. God says, I want you to go to Egypt and set the people free. And he's like, God, I can't even hardly talk straight, let alone do any of that. He was very overwhelmed from the beginning. And then imagine leading Israel through all the things that Moses had to lead them through, right? More than he could endure. I think of stories like Daniel, who because of his love for God and faithfulness to God, was tossed into a lion's den. That's certainly something more than he could handle. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because of their faithfulness to God, tossed into a fiery furnace because they wouldn't bow down to the image of the king. I can think of Paul who went through severe hardship after hardship. In fact, he lists them out all the things that he went through. 
more than he could endure. God allowed that. We'll see in a minute why God allowed that. And guess what? Even Jesus, even Jesus experienced this. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he told his disciples that was where he was the night before, actually the night he was betrayed. After the Last Supper, they went to the garden, and in the garden he told his disciples, look, you stay here and pray because my soul is overwhelmed with suffering to the point of death. Jesus felt overwhelmed. And he's the son of God. God does allow that at times in our life. So why does God give us more than we can handle? We're going to go back to Paul here for a minute in 1 Corinthians. We started talking about all the hardships he went through, the sufferings more than he could endure to where they even despaired of their own lives. Look at what he says, verse 9 of 1 Corinthians. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God doesn't want us to rally more of our own strength. He wants us to rely more on his strength. Let me say that again. God doesn't want us to rally more of our own strength. He's not saying, come on, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, Paul, or, or I know you're going through hardship, but come on, you've got it in you. Keep going. That's, that's not the point. God doesn't want us to rally more of our own strength because how many of you know your strength is never going to be enough? But rather, he wants us to rely more on his strength. See, trials teach us to rely on God's strength. You're not supposed to handle it alone. You're supposed to hand it over, to hand it over and say, God, I need your help. Paul wrote more about his personal experience with, with suffering and, and struggles and his truth in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and I want us to go there, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 6. Before I read it, though, I've got to give you some backstory. So Paul was writing to this church in Corinth, which is a very secularized culture. I mean, we think America's kind of going in a weird direction and very post-Christian. That was Corinth. They were pre-Christian, and they were trying to figure out how this new gospel works in a very flesh-oriented uh, culture. And that was Corinth. And so he writes letters to encourage them. And, and part of the problem that's been happening is there's these other traveling apostles. They called themselves super apostles. And it wasn't any of the original apostles. It wasn't James. I mean, it wasn't any of those. These were people who were false teachers, who were very smooth, very, very well at speaking. They probably looked cool. If they were to be today's pastors, they'd be wearing skinny jeans, you know, with a guitar strapped around their neck, and they'd be talking and preaching, and everybody's loving what they have to say because they always say syrupy things. Well, this particular false teachers that were coming into the church were perverting the gospel, and they were also discrediting Paul. And they were attacking Paul because of his weakness, because of how he looked and how wimpy he was. And they were discrediting Paul's message. And so Paul takes a moment to address these false teachers who were mocking him by using their own same technique. And he does it kind of sarcastically, where Paul takes a while to boast. I mean, it's like paragraphs. If you go back before this context and read it, it's like Paul lists out all of his credentials, and he's doing it kind of sarcastically like they would. But in our passage, look at what he says, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 6. 
even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. In other words, Paul's boasting is true. These things actually happened to him, where these false teachers were just saying what needed to be heard to be accepted. But I refrain, so no one would think of me more than is warranted by what I say or do. Or because of these surpassingly great revelations, God gave Paul visions and and the gospel in a very unique way. Uh, He doesn't really speak too much about it, but he does in this passage. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Thorn in my flesh. What was Paul's thorn in his flesh? Obviously, it wasn't a real thorn. Uh, I think it was baldness. I think that's what it was. Uh, That's my thorn in my flesh. No, I think it was an illness or a sickness that in some way debilitated Paul. It may have made him kind of stand over hunched, not look very impressive. It may have had an impact on his physical appearance. Um, and, And so some kind of an illness that God allowed Paul to experience, a thorn in the flesh. See, the Lord knows how to balance our lives. If we have only blessings, then we may become proud or self-sufficient. So he permits us to have some burdens as well to help balance our life. And Paul prayed to the Lord to take it away multiple times. I know the passage says three, but that's kind of a general number to say, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I kept praying about this. Now think about this for a second. Paul was the guy who would lay hands on people and they would be healed. But he prays for himself. And I bet he even probably laid hands on himself and prayed three times or more for God to remove it and God doesn't. So why didn't the Lord remove the thorn in his flesh? Paul goes on to tell us why. Look at verse 9. But he said to me, This is God, or the Lord, saying to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, Paul tells us it was when he did not have the strength to face his own sufferings that he found God's power and God's faithfulness was sufficient to provide what he needed. God didn't tell Paul to rally more strength. Rather, God told Paul to rely on his strength that he has for him. So perhaps the statement, God will never give you more than you can handle, falls a bit flat when trying to encourage others who are going through a hard time. So might I suggest another cliche, or maybe more appropriate, a promise. And it's this, that God will give you all the grace that you need in every situation. Let me explain what grace means. I know we talk about saving grace and salvation grace, that we receive a gift of salvation that we don't even earn or or deserve. I understand that application of grace, but grace in its general sense means this. It means that God's provision for our every need, 
when we need it. That's grace. God's provision for our every need when we need it. Now, notice it's not God's provision for our every want when we want it. It's not God's provision for every wish when we wish it. God knows what we need. He is a wise and faithful and loving father. And as parents, you know often what your kids need more so than what they want or what they wish. God is much the same with us. In the Christian life, we get many of our blessings through transformation. That was what our our salvation was. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We, We love the blessings that come through transformation because they don't just come through substitution. Let me, let me just take a minute to explain this. Paul prayed three times that God would remove this thorn in the flesh. In other words, he was asking God for substitution. God, I am done with this, and I want you to give me something else in its place. So in football, when a player is done and they need to be subbed out, what do they do? Anybody know what, what the sign is? It's this, it's this I need out. And that's what Paul's doing. God, I need out of this thing. Can you bring in something else or can you replace it with something else? Can you substitute? In other words, he was asking for health instead of sickness. He was asking for deliverance instead of this pain and this weakness. But sometimes God does not meet our needs by substitution. It's often by transformation. What does that mean? He gives us the grace that we need for that affliction, for that hardship to work for us and not against us. Because of that, some of you have heard of the name of a lady, Joni Erickson Tata. You might know that name because she's an example of somebody who endured in the midst of great suffering and still does. The amount of pain she deals with on a daily basis is unreal. But she testifies and has a great platform today of God's grace sufficient for her in the midst of what she is going through. There's an Australian, his name is uh, Nick Voyage, and he stands up, no arms, no legs, just pretty much the middle of his body and testifies to God's grace in the midst of his suffering and enduring. You see, God didn't give Paul any explanations. How many of you want God to explain when you're going through something? We want explanations. What's interesting is that God didn't give Paul an explanation, at least not for why he's going through what he's going through. He gave him a promise. My grace is sufficient for you. See, friends, we can't live on explanations because sometimes we don't understand it but we live on promises. And God did not change the situation by removing that affliction for Paul, but instead he changed it or transformed it by adding a new ingredient, God's grace. Sometimes God denies requests so his people will depend on his abounding, all-sufficient grace. I like the way that Craig Rochelle says it when he was dealing with the topic of suffering, he says these words, until God is all you have, you'll never realize that he's all you need. So no matter how much suffering people face, 
or how deeply they hurt because of that suffering. They need to know the truth that God's grace will be sufficient for them in all of their needs. Not, God's not going to give you more than you can handle. Oh, yeah, well, he just did. Okay, well, then what do you say? Right? A better approach. God will give you all the grace that you need in every situation. See, focusing on our suffering and our own ability to handle that suffering doesn't bring comfort Focusing on God and His grace for us in our suffering can bring us hope and comfort. Hebrews 4.16, I leave you with this passage. The writer of Hebrews tells us what to do with our suffering. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment as we conclude this message today. I have a hunch that in a room this size or for those joining us online, there are people who are going through more than you can handle right now. I don't know what it is for you. It might be something relational, financial, physical. I don't know. But here's what I do know. God knows. He sees. And maybe in this situation, he allows. We don't understand why. Again, sometimes it could be just the wickedness of our world and you're a consequence of somebody else's choice and you're dealing with that. No matter the application, this truth still remains the same. that God will give you all the grace that you need in every situation. So rather than trying harder and wondering why God doesn't care and why God's not helping you, maybe a better approach is to lean toward God's grace for you today. In fact, if you're here and and you're going through something that's more than you can bear, I want you just to do something while you're sitting there. Just kind of put your hands in an upward receiving position, palms up, because I want to pray with you about that. Lord, you know what's going on. The life circumstances, maybe it's the consequences of a decision. Maybe it's the consequences of somebody else's decision. Maybe it's something in your wisdom you're allowing God, I pray right now for those that are going through that to receive your grace. They may already have been saved and received the wonderful saving grace, but grace doesn't end there. Your grace is your provision of our every need when we need it. And right now they need it. So I pray your all-sufficient, overwhelming grace but fill their lives today with hope that you are with them and you will never fail them, never leave them or forsake them. So may they trust in your grace as Paul did. That truth is still the same today as it was when Paul wrote that. 
My grace is sufficient for you. So thank you, Lord, that you will give us the grace that we need in every situation that is bigger than we can handle. Help us to trust you with it. In Jesus' name, amen.